So welcome everyone. We're here with Nicole and we are um, episode 11 of Adjusting to Life Babies and Pediatric Chiropractic. And I want to welcome all my listeners and thank you, Nicole, for joining us. This is a um, mom in my practice who had a very interesting um, first year and a half so uh, with her child. I think it was your third child. The third. Yes. Well, do you want to, um, so you had two other children, um, and the pregnancies and those births were pretty standard or how, how would you describe them? Yeah, I would say both were pretty standard. I always have, um, really bad morning sickness. And so with both, I had, um, all three, actually, I've had really terrible, uh, morning sickness, uh, but otherwise pretty standard. Yeah. Just um, I'm not a happy pregnant person. I don't, it's, I, it was hard <laughs> for all three of them. What, in what way was it hard for you? Um, I think working, uh, probably combined with, uh, just, I get very nauseous, uh, throughout the day, um, for both pregnancies, uh, before, so Alexander's my third. And so both pregnancies before I had to, um, you get IVs once because of fluids. Um, I had gotten strep throat. I, I don't, yeah, just really, they've all been kind of tricky in their own way. I got, yeah. I got shingles. Oh, uh, yeah. Yeah. So you were really stressed during those. Yeah. Do you feel like your pregnancy with Alexander was also really stressed because you had to handle two other children plus work? and be pregnant again? You know, so I wasn't working. And if I had to think about all the pregnancies I had, I think I was maybe most relaxed with him. Um, We were living abroad in Spain. uh, So I really had no pressure to work. I didn't have a lot of family around, no. And so uh, the kids were going to school. So I did have some time. Yeah. Yeah, I, I wasn't as stressed with him. I didn't have any episodes of uh, needing to go to the doctor for with others I had urinary tract infections like I said I had the strap I had the shingles with him I it felt almost normal except terrible morning sickness wow and did that last until this through the second trimester as well or yeah. how long yeah I get I think um for him I was <laughs> pretty nauseous almost the whole way through. Yeah, I mean, really a lot of vomiting and um, I actually retained a lot of water with him. Mm-hmm. Um, if I had had a little bit of a better relationship with a gynecologist um, in Spain, I think she would have done a little bit more looking at how much water I was retaining because um, I had a polyhydroaminos. Yeah. Um, but they just thought I was not eating the Mediterranean diet. (laughs) It sounds hard. I mean, being pregnant in a different country. Um, Were you pregnant with your others in Spain or just Alexander, your last one? Just Alexander. Um, I've had three children and they've all been born in different places. Um, So my daughter, 
uh, is 10 and I had her in Colorado. Mm -hmm. And my middle child is um, seven and I had him in San Francisco. Um, and so, uh, yeah, I, it's kind of, they're both stateside. Okay. And um, so were you, were you hyper nauseous um, even through the third trimester up to the very end? Um, yeah, pretty much up till the very end. I mean, really, um, it started to kind of go down a bit, but I couldn't, I couldn't eat too much, uh, obviously. And I just had to really, I, on, I don't think I was eating a ton towards the end. <laughs> I just, yeah. I was so tired of, of um, being nauseous. And like, I just went to the dentist and my teeth are kind of thinnish. And I, yeah. I believe it's from how much nausea I get. Yeah. You're all three. All that, the acid going into yeah. your teeth. Yeah. Mm -hmm damages your esophagus too. Well, how was your labor and delivery with Alexander? Yeah, so Alexander, um, while when, he, when we had the 20 week anatomy scan, we knew that Alexander would have a minor heart defect. Um, it wasn't something that could be repaired surgically. It looked like he might have a couple holes in his heart, um, but those were ones that with time could close. Uh, so he was, in a private, he was born in a private hospital in Spain that does heart children. And so, um, I, my water broke about a week and a half early at 38 and a half weeks. And so we went to the hospital in, in Spain and were admitted and I, um, labored there and they have something a little bit different where they don't necessarily have, uh, the gynecologist come and check you out if they do midwives and so I labored with a midwife in a room and we were having a little bit of a hard time towards let's see probably about six hours in um his heart rate was dropping a little bit on one side but um I, <laughs> I had a I, I chose an epidural and I had done it for all three of my children the epidural, uh, something had happened where it was only giving me numbness on one side. And so, of course, when I was being flipped on the side, it was opposite the one that we needed to numb. <laughs> and so I had feeling in just in half of my body and the other half I didn't. We kept trying to flip it to try and get the drip down to the half that didn't, but then his heart rate was dropping. So um, I had the midwives there do a lot of pushing on your stomach like I'd never quite felt anything like kind of climb on the table and really get your elbows in to try and get him down um I wasn't dilating quite the way I needed to but I had let them know that I do dilate fast when I'm ready uh they put me into an OR a room and then that was when a little bit of confusion started because I didn't realize that I wasn't gonna deliver him in the room that I was in. And then in the OR, the pediatrician is waiting for you. I mean, and it's like, they laid me flat, which I thought was different. They laid me flat on the bed and you know, and now I'm, by this time I've got one leg that like <laughs> half my body is just so numb. I can't, I can't control it at all. 
I'm feeling the other side. And uh, they lay me completely flat in the pediatrician. And it's like a, they're in their surgical scrubs and everything. Like, and then I was a little confused. And I said, I don't want a C-section. And then they're like, oh, no, this is where you, you'll give birth to them. And I said, well, it hurts. And she says, and this is all in Spanish. The only way it's not going to hurt is if you push. And I pushed and he came out and he was really uh, a pretty big baby. He was 3.3 kilos, which I think is seven, maybe seven and a half pounds or so. Um, he passed his APGARs and he looked a little purple. Um, he didn't have a cry. Um, so that probably should have been, he was crying, but you, it was so faint, you could barely hear. And they kind of wrapped him up and wheeled me back into the room where um, I stayed with him for about eight hours. What were the first eight hours like with him? So Alexander didn't, um, didn't have this strong cry and he was, uh, seemed to have a lot of phlegm in the back of his throat. And so when you give birth in Spain, and this was a private hospital, which seems the reverse of what they do in public hospitals, you have to bring everything you want. So I, would, I had to bring him diapers, clothes, um, my own uh, like maxi pads, those stretchy underwear. And you, some of them were really hard to even find in Spain. And one of the things I wish I would have brought, but I couldn't, was one of those suction bulbs because I wanted yeah. to get the phlegm out. And they don't suction the babies. And so I called the nurse and I said, you know, he's got so much phlegm. I, I can, like, I feel like he can't breathe because it's just like this, you can hear the rattle, rattle, rattle. And uh, she said, he just needs to cough it out and get strong. And I had, I saw the pediat my um, gynecologist, I, I didn't see her again. Like nobody came to um, see how I was doing or anything. It was just me and the baby, and my husband was taking care of the other two kids. They came, they saw him, and then they left, but I was alone. And so I'm um, ringing the bells and uh, a little confused because, quite frankly, he didn't look like um, a, one of my other children when they were born. So when he, he, I knew he'd have a lot of hair, and his hair came out, was very shaggy, and his ears were a little deformed looking, his shoulders looked a little bit sloped and his body was just so floppy. And so um, I'm holding him. I'm trying to get him to nurse. Nothing's happening. Um, he's trying. You can see he's, he's trying, but he just doesn't have it there. Um, finally, I had a girlfriend, thank gosh, come in. And she's an American. She's had four kids. And she came. She lived right down the street. She said, I want to come and see the baby. I said, okay, great. Come on in. And we're, she's just sitting there and she's watching, she's listening to him. She brought me a suction <laughs> that she had. She looked all over for a suction bulb. She brought me a suction. She brought me the comb and the brush because he hadn't had a bath or anything at that point. And um, I had him all swaddled. So I said, you know, I want you to look at him. And we unswaddled him and his arms and legs are purple. And so when you pushed on him, you know, you get that white mark and then the, and she said, I don't think that that's normal. And I said, thank you. I said, I don't think that this is normal too. And I've been trying to communicate with these midwives that just, 
he needs to get strong. He needs to work it out himself. Um, so, so I finally called and they said, all right, we'll get, um, a, we'll get the on-call pediatrician to come and look at him. So the on-call pediatrician comes to get him, takes one look at him and says, okay, well, I'm going to take him to the PICU and grabs him like a football hold <laughs> and walks away. And then he comes back with him and he says, your baby is, um, I think the word was, the word's like floppy. Your baby's floppy. And so he needs to be admitted to the PICU. I said, okay. And he has the little basket. And they said, so the PICU is over there. Um, we'll see you soon. We're getting ready. And the doctor walks away. <laughs> so I was like, we were kind of confused. And again, Alexander is struggling at this point. He is just like um, retracting pretty bad in his chest, uh, really shallow breathing and this color where his body is just like a little, like a rag doll. Like when he came in and he left, he was just like being flopped around. And, um, and so, so uh, <laughs> I'm laughing, but it's not funny. I had to walk him with my husband, thankfully, was my husband was there, and I had to walk him to the PICU. Um, nobody was with us. No nurse accompanied us, and he was in a different building. And so I, um, my husband wheeled him, and I walked behind, and obviously I'd just given birth, and I'm just leaving a trail of blood behind me because I can't, oh my God. I can barely walk. And so I sat on the floor, and then um, Tommy took him to the PICU and said, you know, my wife is there on the floor. Can somebody help? So they took Alexander and then they said, we'll take care of him and you guys, and we'll let you know when he, you're ready to see him. So I ended up having to, um, so Tommy went and got like this kind of wheelchair thing. And we sat outside for, I don't know, like two or three hours just waiting to see what they were going to do. Wow. I'm crying at this point. <laughs> I know you want to cry probably. I mean, this is so tragic sounding. He's fighting for his life and you're bleeding and there's no one to support you but your husband and thank yeah. God for Tommy. And mm -hmm. Yeah. And my, my mother is, my mother was with the kids. And so, um, you know, I'm grateful for that. And she was able to fly and I speak Spanish and my mother speaks Spanish. She's from El Salvador. Um, but at that moment, it felt like only people were speaking Spanish. And so that leaves Tommy kind of completely in the dark too, right? Like he has no idea what what's going on. I'm the only one that can, can communicate. Uh, and so Spain's a little different too, where they're okay with you leaving your babies in the NICUs. Um, there's no bed. It's an open NICU. There's not a encouragement to stay. And so, for instance, when he disappeared into behind the doors, and it's like these doors where they, they'll only let you in when it's ready, but anytime they do it in mission, every parent has to leave. And so say there's 15 or 16 babies in this NICU, whenever one comes in or a child, it's also a PICU in the back whenever anybody comes in, all the parents get kicked out. So there's a lot of time when they're alone. And then uh, when the doctors do their rounds and the specialists, 
you're also not allowed to be in there. And so it was, um, it was a, that was the first time I kind of was like, wait a minute, <laughs> I'm not able to advocate for my baby. Like I need to. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. It's very disempowering. And it is frightening. Yeah. It was, it's scary. So when I was able to see him and Tommy was with me, he had been hooked up on a high flow oxygen and he actually looked pretty good, but he had something called strider where it's like a whistle kind of that comes out of your, your mouth where it's like, um, I can only say it's a, it's like a whistle and you could tell how fast he was breathing because it's like a just very, very, it's a, not necessarily high pitched, but it ranged all over. And so I'm in the NICU. He's huge compared to all these little babies, but he's, all you can hear is this, him breathing. You can hear him breathing above all the sounds of machines, everything. And I saw him and I was like, oh my gosh, (laughs) this is like, this is pretty serious. Um, What's the plan? So the plan was just to try and they uh, get him oxygen and the specialist would come in in the morning to see how he was doing. Cause I think he was born, he was born on the weekend. And so Monday, um, Monday was when the specialist would come. So the specialists that were lined up was an ENT uh, and um, they weren't equipped with an ENT. It was a they were equipped with the heart doctors, but they didn't necessarily have an, an ENT available. And so they had to get him from another hospital. And this is where I was a, learned a little bit more about uh, socialized medicine and that there's private hospitals and then there's the public hospitals and basically all the specialists and almost every private doctor also works for the public hospitals. So in the mornings, I didn't realize like, for instance, his heart doctor worked in the mornings in the public hospital. And then that's why my heart appointments um, when he was in utero were always at seven, eight o'clock at night (laughs) because I have a doctor that's been working at two hospitals doing private to get a little bit more money, but doing public because that's basically what all the specialists do. Um, So I didn't have a, so by the time an ENT was able to come, it's late in the afternoon, very late afternoon is like after lunch, which is probably four, five, six. Um, and they diagnosed him with something called laryngomalacia, which is where your esophagus, the cartilage in your airway is floppy. Um, his was so floppy that, and it hadn't hardened. And so whenever he was taking breaths in or out, it started collapsing around his, his airway. And so it's like a small, the amount of air he was able to get was super small because his larynx was collapsing. Thankfully, um, his uh, esophagus, the rest of his esophagus looked pretty good, but just at the very top, um, he was collapsing. Okay. Yeah. Uh, So, so that took some time with, to kind of to diagnose, but more importantly, it was like, what's the, what's the plan? And the plan was for him to, with time, his cartilage would harden. And that's the goal. <laughs> and so uh, it, that's fine. And, you know, I mean, obviously a lot of babies in the NICU, that's all they need is time, <laughs> right? I mean, that seemed like at the time, it seemed like, okay, we can do this. 
So he was doing pretty good. And so at some point we were able to sort of lower his oxygen. I was pumping a lot um, to try and get him to eat. And it ended up that he just couldn't get enough between all of his work of breathing, there was nothing left, if that makes sense. There's no energy. Yeah. Um, there's no energy left for him to even barely open his eyes, definitely not move his little body. I mean, he just was like a baby just working to breathe for a month. So they fed him by the, a feeding tube that goes through his nose mm -hmm. and dropped down into his stomach. Um, and it was breast milk and it was pretty much a constant, a constant drip. And he did okay with that, but it started to look like he was getting some pretty severe acid reflux. Um, they did the scope again, and these are all, sometimes they were, uh, at the time they were just scopes where, um, they would come bedside and do it. They hadn't sedated him yet. Uh, and then, so bedside they saw that he had edema which is a big swelling of the airway and it looked like the acid reflux was burning his little um, airway up so much that was already weakened because it's floppy um, and so we had to really manage around acid reflux and he spent if he wasn't breathing it felt like he was choking and um, throwing up wow that's so hard to watch. Oh, it was really sad. <laughs> it's hard to, it's hard to um, imagine a baby suffering. So yeah. yeah, and when it's your baby, it's really sad. And then it's really sad being also surrounded in a NICU PICU environment too, where it's all open. Mm -hmm. And so, um, you know, you're not just there by yourself. You're there open environment staring at, at other other parents who are having these little babies that I'm realizing with, if they came in and they had a really, really strong cry, <laughs> I was kind of like, oh, that baby's going to be fine. But it took time. Mm -hmm. it, it took time at the beginning, every, every new admission to a PICU, sorry, every new admission to a PICU, you're, I was like, oh no, this baby's so small because <laughs> I'd never seen anything like it. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. And another issue we were having there was, just trying to get the time to see him. Mm. So you know my sister, um, she flew out and she'd been present for the birth of her other, my other two. And um, she's like second mommy. <laughs> and so <laughs> I needed her to come and see the baby. And they said that only parents are allowed to visit. And I said, but it's not sustainable for us. This doesn't, this doesn't work because I have two other children at home. I have a husband who's working, you know, I mean, this is a, this is like a week and a half in, I, I need support here. Um, they allowed 15 minutes a day to, for visitors, um, oh to see the babies. And so my mom was with me for about a month and she saw him twice. <laughs> and, um, because it's, it was too hard to just coordinate everything for just 15 minutes. And um, Juliet came and I said, you know, this, Juliet's my sister. I said, please, I need some help. So what they were doing is they were sneaking. They allowed us, um, I had to ask the on-call doctor every night before um, if they would allow my sister to come and 
sit with Alexander from the hours of, I think it was around 1 a.m. to 5 a.m. So she got four hours where she would just be able to hold him and be with him because I, I couldn't, I needed to sleep. And it, like I said, so every night I had to find this on-call doctor, chase him down, figure out if the nurse on call would be okay with it too, sneak my sister in and have her sneak out before anybody could see because they said it would be unfair to other families if the babies, uh, or if they had a family member in and I, nobody else. Um, so they, I was able to do that. And I'm so thankful because we realized during the night is that uh, I, I, I feel bad, like, cause I'm, but it, this is all true. I mean, it's not like I'm making it up. The, the babies were not watched. <laughs> um, they had monitors. And so our, my child can't cry. Like he has never had a voice. And so the babies that could cry, the nurses would come over. Oh yeah. Yeah. What's going on? You know, feed them, pat them and put them to sleep. It's a three hour schedule. Every three hours they eat every three hours, they get their diapers changed. You know, and so there was a lot of time where the nurses were in a break room around the corner. And then there was also a corner where Alexander was where there's a blind spot. And so nobody would see him. And so one night he was having a really hard time breathing. And Juliet was like, um, and her Spanish is, is not as good as mine. And especially in a stressful situation, it's sometimes you just have brain freezes. She said, you know, he's having a really hard time breathing. I'm help me. And then they were kind of like, oh, again, oh, he's fine. I'll well, just do a more oxygen. And then they leave. And Juliet can't do anything. And he ended up choking and aspirating um, mm -hmm. because he's on his back the whole time. He's having all these vomiting episodes. So I come in in the morning and he's needing more oxygen, even though we had been starting to wean him off. He was having um, a little bit of a low grade fever and aspiration is basically when you get fluid into your lungs and you start to develop pneumonia. Um, it was, that happened that time. And poor Juliet realized two nights later when she's been trying to do Google translate, trying to get some help. Two nights later, a nurse comes um, and says, uh, they're changing the diaper and the nurse says lift up his leg but she said it in perfect English and Juliet says excuse me you speak English and the nurse says yes she goes but you were here the night two nights ago when you saw me trying to google translate with the nurse and you didn't help me and she says yes I've been feeling really bad about that I um I've been practicing English for the last two weeks to get up the courage to talk to you, <laughs> you know? And so Juliet was like, flew out of the room just crying because when you needed help and you, nobody's there, but somebody yeah. knows that you need it. It, it was, it was hard. So at the time we'd been thinking we need to transfer him, transfer him. And, um, his pneumonia wasn't really getting better. He was going from needing, winning off to needing more and more oxygen still having episodes of turning very, very purple. Um, they had to bag him a few times, which basically means that they're like using a um, ambu or something to pump air into him to kind of give him a breath of life. Um, so he had that happen like two or three times. 
um, oh. while we were not while we were there. So I'm not sure how many times it was happening when we were not allowed to be there. So um, we were able to transfer him at about five weeks to a public hospital um, just to try and get him specialist care. Wow. Thank God. Well, we'll see how that goes. But were you, we talked a little bit when I met you about how the lack of developmental care in the, in the PICU or NICU where he was for those first five weeks and mm-hmm. how um, there, you know, they really didn't turn the babies much or handle them much. Yeah, that's true. Um, yeah, it's, I think it's, there's, there's, there was none. There wasn't any, it was sort of like when we came in and we wanted to hold the baby all night or whatever, it was sort of like, oh, we're going to have to move a lot of equipment just to, you know, the tubes and the wires, you're going to have to move a lot. Are you sure you want to do this? You know, mommy, he's more comfortable not being held. He just, and maybe that's true for the very young babies, of course, the ones that are born at 28, 30, 32 weeks, you know, that don't, can't be handled. They're in the the little isolation things. But in our case, he was the by and far the biggest baby in that NICU. He was full term. Yeah. And he needed uh, attention and stimulation. And so even my husband saw it, like my husband was better than I was at just saying, this baby's here. <laughs> you know, he's, he's here. He's like, I see him. I see him fluttering his eyes. I see him looking around. I'm seeing smiles. He enjoys his bath time. You know, I mean, there's, um, but it, it wasn't, there was no, um, no therapists, no, um, like, um, no support, no, nobody, no child life. I didn't even know that that existed for over a year. I did not know that somebody like a child life would come and just Mm -hmm. do the simple thing, hook up a toy or a flashing lights in front of babies just to engage them. Yeah. It wasn't, that wasn't there. Yeah. I mean, in America, it's really different. Or I worked at UCSF and we had a developmental care committee and we would um, turn the babies and use uh, special foams and pillows and things to help mold their heads. And we encouraged moms to do skin to skin mm-hmm. and would do therapeutic touch. And it's just a whole different ball game in a different country. With different um, social mores there were different completely. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And the only thing I can say is that for some reason in, in Spain, they encourage their children not to be held as much. And it's obvious because you'll have a, like a 16, 17 month old who is carrying a backpack walking into school. And I had my two other ones and then they would sit in the, I think my son was two and a half and I was holding him multiple times. I would get scolded on the street for holding him, just say, put him down. He needs to learn how to walk like from, you know, older gentlemen. Um, well, he's too, he's too old for a stroller. Let him walk, let him walk. Like he needs to learn how to walk. And so that's, that's something culturally I would have had no idea. And I, it was very confusing at the beginning. And then when you look, I mean, these little babies, to me, they're babies. They're walking to school with backpacks, strong, beautiful, beautiful, strong shoes <laughs> made with that Spanish leather, and they're walking. 
they're not oh. being held. There's not a, there's not the, um, attachment parenting that mm -hmm. we, um, had become familiar with. Yeah. We kind of highly value attachment parenting here in this country. Yeah. So it must've been very bewildering to you and confusing and just totally, um, disengaging in some, so many levels mm -hmm. have such a stark change. Yeah. And if like, if, if my baby was healthier or if I had a relationship, I think it could have been a great time for advocacy. Right. But for me, I was just, mm. uh, it's true, bewildered and, and confused. Yeah. Yeah. To say the least, <laughs> yeah. I mean, we're really emotionally traumatized to the max. Yeah. 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 So thankfully he ended up getting transferred um, to a, the best public hospital in Spain, which was just like um, something I had heard about, but I didn't, I had never even gone. And we'd been working on the transfer for quite some time. He did not have, uh, we didn't have a birth certificate hit for him because we're American citizens it was actually a little tough to even get him the paperwork to be able to transfer him. Um, at some point he had about half the paperwork um, with a social services card that gives him access to the public health care system, mm -hmm. which meant that we were paying taxes in Spain. So if you, if you live in Spain, you're a resident of Spain and you pay taxes, all the public health care system is free to you. And so we just had to get that paperwork sorted by getting him kind of added on, show that we were paying taxes and all that. So we probably had the paperwork about halfway done and Alexander's pneumonia had been getting quite a bit worse. So he got a little bit crazy, I guess I could say. He was just out of, like out of sorts, moving, 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 breathing too hard, has a fever, just kind of like having a, an episode. And I told the nurse, you know, I've kind of seen him do this a couple of weeks ago and it took antibiotics and everything to get him, get him back. And something's wrong. Something's wrong with my baby. I had, we had left him you know, again. I had left him and I came back and he was sort of, I could tell he was more junky. And in the back of my mind, I was just like, I can't blame these people, but I think he aspirated again. I, I think he aspirated again. I wasn't around and I, you know, we kicked myself over it, but in the long run, um, it was probably good because it pushed us out of this private hospital into the public system. And so um, what they do that's really wonderful in Spain is that they have a lot of support on these transfers. And I know that you were a transfer, um, a transfer nurse, which is amazing. Um, and so the, the team came in and it wasn't just like one nurse. It was a team of probably four ambulance technicians, one uh, NICU doctor, and two very professional trained nurses. And they came in and they took one look at him. And this very tall doctor that I just want to thank over and over again, she had heard my husband and I speaking English to each other. And she looked over at us and in English, she says, you are taking your baby to the best hospital. I'm taking your baby to the best hospital in Spain. And she said, don't worry, he's going to be fine. 
And she took, when I say she took control of that NICU, she bossed all these nurses that were terrible, terrible um, caregivers to us. She just snapped them into shape. And then I'll never forget the doctor who was in charge of Alexander, who had been my, um, my contact. And remember, I have to speak to her for all the specialists. I have to speak to her for anything that ever happened. I never got a, a, a real conversation with a specialist. Like for instance, the cardiologist who I had been visiting, I never heard from him that my baby's heart is okay or not a problem. And that's the reason why I'm in this hospital. It was the doctor who said the cardiologist came by and said his heart is fine. And then that's it, <laughs> you know? And so, um, so to hear another doctor speak to me, and then if you can believe it, I don't, I don't know what happened. But at that moment, Alexander passed out. Wow. And he turned blue and just was gone. And that doctor just snapped into shape and she goes and she had been concerned about intubating him concerned about transporting him without being intubated because if you get intubated um it's on en route it's super difficult right i mean there's so much out so much stuff that could happen and so i'm screaming at that point because you know the doctor and the doctor said get me this get me this and this beautiful team just came and they intubated him and I overheard the doctor that had been in charge of him say how do you intubate him and she didn't know <laughs> and that's when I knew that, I knew that Alexander waited you know until <laughs> somebody who knew how to intubate him actually was there but she said how do you intubate him and the doctor gives her a look and says watch me now you know and just like this is all in Spanish and just <sighs> intubated him so beautifully and off he went. And so he was escorted by two ambulances. They bring one um, backup just in case the first ambulance breaks down. And the police officers um, also do a police escort. So he had a train of two police motorcycles, one police car, and two ambulances that took him to a hospital probably about 15 or 16 miles away. And they said, there's no space for you. You guys come in your car. You won't be able to be allowed in the hospital, you know, because again, with these admissions, they don't, uh, it's an emergency. They don't let you parents be in. And so they said, you know, take your time. So we went home. I told my mom, the baby's getting transferred. All this stuff is happening. I actually took a shower and I went to the hospital and <laughs> it was a shock because I hadn't been there before. And yeah. the hospital was built in 1960 and it had never been updated. <laughs> and so when I saw this hospital, I said, this is the best hospital in Spain. <laughs> you know, it was like, <laughs> what have I done? <laughs> it was, I mean, like to say it's a dump, it's kind of, it's kind of a dump. <laughs> like compared to what? Did you, you know, say 1916 or 60? Zero. Yeah. You hear me? 1960? Yeah, 1960. Yeah. Okay. So, um, so it hadn't really been updated. And there's this, just this, I should have sent you the picture because it's crazy. It's like, um, you know, old linoleum, very, in, unfortunately, Spain has a history of um, having a communist dictator. And um, 
they were a bit behind. They'd say that you're like, they're like 20, they were 20 years behind in, in certain things. Like, um, yeah. Um, and part of it is this hospital. I mean, it's just something that they hadn't had the finances and they have this wonderful healthcare system where everything's free, <laughs> but they focus on, um, emergency medicine, getting these specialists, but not necessarily, um, fixtures. Right. Right. So, um, they had, the, they had him for a long time and we couldn't see him for really, I mean, hours, I think it was probably like six or seven hours. And when we were allowed to come in, actually before we could see him, two doctors came and spoke to us, thankfully in English, a uh, young, young doctors with, now that I know the doctor, <laughs> I very, very negative tone, very serious. Um, I'm in a, and the, the room where they use, they speak to pa- parents is this, uh, it's also a locker room where your parents can keep their stuff, but it has a broken chair. Mm. And it's like, so old, the furniture is so old, and the chair is so, is old, is that there's only four chairs. And so you know that somebody's going to get the broken chair. <laughs> and so like, of course, you know, like nobody wants this broken chair, but there's no choice. And so I can't tell you how many times I would walk into this room with the doctors and somebody, a doctor would sit in the broken chair and the chair flips up on you and they kind of fall. And I kept, and wow. you know, and so it's so weird that this, this is happening outside of the ER, you know, with serious parents and you have these conversations wow. and people are walking in and out and this damn chair, <laughs> you know, it was like, and so I, I remember getting the broken chair and being like, oh, and then these, dep- what, where is my child? Um, yeah. And so he, um, long story short, he spent three months in this windowless, um, PQ, which was a trauma room basically and dated open again, every, it was open or, um, so anytime there was an emergency, which was all the time parents, you have to leave. Um, you're not allowed to spend the night. Um, basically my hours to see him were, I could see him after 10 a.m. until they, they do shift changes every eight hours. And so you need, they need two hours basically to do a shift change. And so I had at least six hours that I couldn't see him. And then more because from 11 to like 5 a.m. Um, you also can't be there. And then there's no, sometimes there was a chair available to us. Sometimes there wasn't. If there's a, a person who has... Um, you know, if they were new or something, and sometimes they would have the two parents sit because normally it's just one parent at a time. If they were allowed to have two parents sit because it's a new trauma, then they, they would take a chair, right? So that would leave me standing, which is fine. <laughs> but like, wow. it, it was always a kind of a weird thing. And How many um, babies in that room? Yeah, so it's, it wasn't babies. Um, by this time, he was in the PICU. And so um, he was in, a, in like a bed, not a crib, like oh. his own bed. Um, where they kind of like buffered around him again, uh, no toys, no anything, just buffered, mm-hmm. buffered in a bed. And in it was six six children in the room, and then through windows um, on either side of us. So then there would I would see like a room of another six kids and another room of another six kids, you know. And so it's like wow. it, it it was pretty intense because you would see and frankly bond with the people behind the window because 
he would be closest to a child suffering from cancer and I would see the parents coming in and out. Um, or if everything got blocked off it, for the room, I, I would see it because I'm, he's right next to somebody, but it's, there's just a window dividing them. And yeah. so um, Alexander, for instance, was next to uh, probably one of the most beautiful young girls and she was 17 and she had cancer, uh, a rare form of leukemia. And um, she had gotten, another wonderful thing about Spain is that they're not afraid to try, try things. And so she'd gotten um, stem cells from her mother mm -hmm. that everything was really great, except one of the side effects was that, uh, and you just learn this by talking to the parents outside because <laughs> there's so much time you can't actually be with your child that you also, you kind of yeah. sit outside and something, um, it just, it, something was happening with the capillary glands after the transplant that she would just have boost, um, bursts where her arteries and veins would burst. Wow. Um, and so she, you know, some days she was begging for morphine and some days she was, mm -hmm. she, but every day she would say, she would watch Alexander. She would sleep turned towards him. Wow. And she would, I know she would sleep <laughs> turned towards him. And then when I would walk in, she would say, you know, sometimes you couldn't even hear her, but she would say, tell, tell her that he's, he did good last night or tell her about this. And she, like, she, she was, her and her family were so beautiful and wonderful. They got him, they even got him a little stuffed animal because he had nothing. And the parents said, you know what, we got him something and it's his little hero on it because this baby is, he's so strong and he's going to be fine. Meanwhile, their daughter is, gosh, she's been suffering from cancer since she was 13 years old. And so it had been four years. And she'd, met, she'd spent every birthday since she was 13 in the hospital. Um, wow. Just because um, her, she, she just couldn't get healthy. She had a brother who would come in and he was so affectionate. Like I, I thought, we thought he was the boyfriend for a while because he was just like, he would just kiss, 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 kiss her, hug her. They would just like, and I realized that there's in families, how what you give to patients is so interesting. So the mother would be, the mother would be just like a mother, you know, always tending, always tending to her, rubbing her with ointments, doing massages, doing her feet, like just this, like acting like what I probably would probably do nurture, nurture, combing her hair, doing all this stuff. The brother would come in and be the distractor. Oh my gosh, I'm going to show you this picture. And they would watch like video games and then he would show her stuff, kiss her, but tell her about friends, tell her about stuff and kind of help her distract. And the father who was such a nice man was very like, okay, so this is what you're doing. And then this is going to be the next step. And this is what, you know, and very, a little bit more like, um, strategy, <laughs> right? Like this is, and always optimistic. I was like, um, so talking to her about like school and things like that. And so I realized just watching this family for so long, cause he was there for four, he, he was in and out for four months. He was there for at least two. Um, and then he would, go back and forth a couple of times. And so just watching them, I realized that e each family member, it's funny how you react, but it's also how you work. You <laughs> with 
how you yeah. cope. Yeah. 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 Mm-hmm. And so he eventually got to go home, but then he would have to go back to the hospital, right? Yeah. Right? Yeah. So Alexander, because of this Malaysia, this is where <laughs> you've helped me so much and, and everybody is because of this Malaysia, he also has something called low muscle tone and mm-hmm. they suspected that he had a genetic disorder. Um, when a geneticist came by, it's very clinical, but they kind of look at a few markers. And so one of his markers is that he, on his, um, on his hand, he has a hockey stick, mm-hmm. um, which can be associated with a genetic disorder or a fetal alcohol sy- syndrome. Mm-hmm. Um, he also has uh, this low muscle tone, which is called hypotonia. Mm-hmm. Um, he had the kind of uh, ears that were lower a little bit and a little deformed. And um, what else? They they showed me something that they said is a third nipple, which I would have never known. It's just like a little indention. Uh Um, So he has a third nipple. (laughs) And so they said they suspected he had a genetic disorder. And they ran the first um, screen. They thought it was something called uh, 22Q11 deletion syndrome. Uh And thankfully he was negative. They were like, okay, your baby's fine but we're going to keep running tests. And it ended up being, and this is, I didn't find out. And we always suspected genetic disorder. We just didn't know what it was. And I didn't find out until he was almost nine months old, what it actually was. And it's something called charge syndrome, Mm C-H-A-R-G-E. He's not a typical charge syndrome. He's an airway charger, which meant that um, when you have a genetic disorder, Part of what they suspected is because he had multiple parts of his body infect, uh, affected by some a deformity. So he had the heart defect. He also had an airway defect. And um, he also had a gastrointestinal defect. And so Alexander, we found out that part of what his reflux was, ha- was happening was that he had something called intestinal malrotation, where uh-huh. his intestines were a little bit twisted. Yeah. And so this first year of his life was basically in the first six months was just trying to get him like life support and figure out what he needs. So his reflux, the food wasn't even going down because his intestines were twisted that like, it was just kept splashing back. Um, he needed a surgery and, uh, the only way to keep him safe and not have him intubated, uh, cause eventually he came out of intubation. He had to be intubated again, you know? And so the more you do that, the more, danger it is that you'll do permanent damage that they um they gave him a tracheostomy and so um so he got a tracheostomy at around uh, let's see eight weeks old Uh maybe a little bit less than eight weeks old and that made his airway safe enough to be able to do this first major surgery he had which was um to correct his intestinal malrotation the good news was that his intestinal malrotation was up towards the top. Um, but what they do is they actually take all the intestines out, line them up, um, put them out, and then put them back in. And so it was a pretty major surgery. And at that time, they gave him a feeding tube to a G-tube, and he still has both. Yeah. Yeah. So the second six months, what you said, the first six months was really life support. Yep. Second six months was that the surgery time too? What other surgeries during that time? Um, So during the, he's only had only, he's had a lot of scopes and a lot of um, different 
procedures where, um, but he actually has had only two major surgeries. And the first was that intestinal, I'm sorry, the trach. And the second was the intestinal malrotation. Um, he's oh. had to be sedated a few times to do like scopes. Um, they did a, what did they do? Yeah, it's, it's ear tubes, you know, I mean, things like procedures. And so the first, yeah, so the first six months was him being heavily sedated in these cold, cold environments, um, not getting enough attention. Um, you know, obviously I'm worn out. Um, yeah. It's still doing a lot of just translating to and knowing that things can be different, right? I mean, this isn't this isn't normal. Like his, his IV bottles were glass, you know, <laughs> that's how yeah. old this hospital. It's like glass IV yeah. bottles. Like, like, um, when there's medication, there's a big metal medication rack full of vials. Mm-hmm. And I don't even know what they're giving him. I did, I did not know that he was sedated as much um, with fentanyl oh. as long as he was. Oh. So, um, after the trach, it, I, I hated it. I, we actually didn't get the opportunity to even really have a good discussion about it. Again, it's almost like he felt like he was a ward of, of the hospital. <laughs> and I'm just like somebody who's yeah. kind of in and out. They make yeah. decisions. They were making decisions about him. And so it was like, oh, you know, we think he needs a trach. Of course, we'll let you know before we do it. So yeah. when he got surgery for the trach, Again, there's no chairs. My husband and I are sitting on the floor outside this hospital, along with grandmas and grandpas and everybody sitting on the floor. And he came out and it was the first time I was actually able to see his face without stuff, you know, without like, he's getting his oxygen through the trach now and he's getting ventilation and everything. And so his face was clear and he's beautiful. You know, he was, he was beautiful with, um, without all that junk on his face. (laughs) I mean, and so, um, so I think that that was the opportunity where it took, it was scary, but like we saw that he had some color. Like he finally looked like he, he, he was so pale when he was born. He was either purple or pale, you know, or gray. <laughs> so to have some like real baby color, he looked, he was beautiful. And, and just remember that my children have only ever seen him during this the whole time, four or five months. They'd only ever seen him twice too, you know, like the day wow. he was born and wants to visit for that 15 yeah. minutes and that's it. And so, you know, I took so many pictures of him so that way they could, I could say, here's your baby brother. Like he looks like a baby now, you know, because um, <laughs> before it was, it was a lot. And poor thing. He never saw me because we're in this, um, having to be in this sterile environment because so many children are sick that he never would see me without being draped too. Right. Like I'm, always masked, always in PPE, just to see him, to hold him, to do all of that. And so, um, yeah, it's, yeah. it's a big, big deal. It was a big deal. And so when we saw him, it looked like that was the kind of a turning point for us. And so he ended up doing pretty well enough to get back to a step down unit where they started doing the training for us to um, be able to bring him home. He had another bout of pneumonia where he aspirated and um, he went back back to the, um, the, the NICU, or, I'm sorry, the PICU again. Um, we were able to clear up his pneumonia. It was an infection. They had pulled in um, aspiration. And he, they also had pulled his, um, they admitted later that, or they let me know later that they had pulled his uh, sedation too fast. 
And so he kind uh-huh. of, he went through like a withdrawal. Yeah. And, um, you know, and so got, got actually quite ill from that. Uh, oh. He, he had a E. coli. Yeah. MRSA and uh, also started to get a lot of bacterias just from all the time and the fidgeting and being yeah. in these environments. And so, yeah. um, so the goal was just to try and get him out. And again, like there's no, there's no child life. There's nobody coming by to visit us. There's no physical therapist. There's no um, anybody, just us. When you're in a step down unit, you have to be, somebody has to be there 24 hours a day with him because yeah. um, he can't be left. And so that was another, <laughs> that was like another challenge for us to be there 24 hours a day with, uh, just by ourselves with a very sick baby. But, um, and then meanwhile, they were training us to try and get him out. Um, wow. That's so intense. Wait. It is so intense. Oh my God. Your, your, your poor body and mind needs like 20 years to recover from that. <laughs> yeah. I mean, yeah, I like, I think I've done maybe, maybe I've done a, I think I've, think of him as like a lot of before and after right like our time and so like yeah. like before after <laughs> like so after the trach it's good just to segment I segment a lot of stuff and so yeah. like after uh, the trach I, I we segmented and then eventually we were able to bring him home and that was the whole new ball game because it's not like he just came home with um like a regular baby right he came home with an oxygen monitor event um a suction machine oh, which, still on the vent oh yeah um we just had it just we mostly had it just in case of emergencies oh um, okay. but so uh actively ventilated he wasn't actively ventilated no and i still have a vent i have a ventilator here in case of emergencies too wow um but he yeah so he came home and needing to be suctioned all the time it's like um so when you suction it's like just the mucus because he, he has a swallowing disorder mm-hmm. um we probably i might not but he ended up actually never learning how to swallow and because the muscle is um he has so much muscle weakness he just doesn't have the strength to swallow and so um you know i have he can't swallow even his own saliva so i had to suction that out all the time of his mouth and his trach um yeah and so so that was that was a lot and he went back and forth to the hospital several times he pulled his feeding tube out once (laughs) I didn't know what Uh to do um he started doing something called vagaling yeah and that was something that you would know I had no idea that this nerve (laughs) affects so much but he was um if it got touched in the wrong way by his trach he would just pass out wow Mm -hmm. so it was a it was a year or I should say it was, it was 10 months basically, but the first six were all, was that. And then the second six months of his life was sort of just a kind of adjusting and, and being um, a nurse <laughs> to him, like just trying to get him better mm-hmm. um, and not making sure that we're not doing anything uh, permanently damaging, just mm-hmm. trying to keep him alive. <laughs> My God. How old is he now, Nicole? Tell our listeners. Yeah. So Alexander's two and a half years old. And um, when he was 11 months old, we were able to tra- uh, 
um, finally moved out of Spain and we had to get permission from the uh, doctors and everybody to actually just have allow him to leave the country. And um, we had to fly with the nurse, um, everybody on board just to get him out of the country. And my husband always says when we hit like halfway through our trip, he said to, he said that he thought to himself, okay, it doesn't really matter because if we have to do an emergency landing with him right now, we're going to the United States and we're not going back. <laughs> um, and so, so he, uh, two days after we arrived, we went to New York and I took him to uh, one of the best ENTs that I knew of that had experience with children that have charge syndrome um, in Columbia Hospital in New York City. And he took one look at the trach he had. He took one look at him and he said, that's not what we do in the United States. <laughs> and so he said, come back to my office two days later. There's, he's, he's booked out for like seven months. He said, come back to my office and we'll start getting him straightened out. So his name's Eli Grunstein. And I went back to his office and um, he had found a trach that basically they said doesn't exist for him or couldn't work, ever work. And he said, all right, take his trach out, mom, and put it back in. And I said, I can't. And he says, well, why can't you take the trach out? I said, because every time I've done it in Spain, he has turned gray and passed out. And the doctor said, well, that's weird. And then he tried taking it out and it was the wrong size and had been doing so much damage to his airway because it was just the wrong trach that he said, oh, I understand, you know, what, do, what you've been dealing with here. It was they had put like a weird little plastic extension on it um, just to try and get it to fit right. So he would not vagal um, in any case. And they had a balloon in it, which um, helped with his secretions, but it was fully inflated the whole time versus deflating it. And so he had, um, so at that moment, the doctor switched it out and that changed everything for us <laughs> like just hit, getting him in the right medical equipment which is for that yeah. it's his trach uh like two days later he, he was like a different baby wow mm -hmm. wow how long were you in new york with him yeah so we were in new york um almost a year and a half and he had been part of something called an aerodigestive team which if anybody has any child who has um feeding issues or failure to thrive or any kind of breathing pneumonia aspiration. These I didn't quite realize that these aerodigestive teams exist, but it's basically where a pulmonologist, an ENT, a feeding specialist, a swallowing specialist, and a um, GI work together. And so he got on the aerodigestive team and also a trach team out of Columbia, where when I had one appointment, I would meet with all of them in one room at the same time, and we would actually talk and have a conversation, and they you would bounce. A chair. You uh -huh. had a chair. <laughs> I had a chair. Alexander had a table. You know, I mean, we were like, it was uh, the first time. The first time they all walked in, and I just kind of, you know, when you know something's different, you know something's different the whole time, and you don't know how you can get it or if you're losing your mind. The first time they all walked in, and I mean, like angels. I was just like, oh my God, this is what I've been waiting for for so long. Like to actually speak to a specialist, but not just one, but like five, like that cared and they had read his chart. And then they say, okay, mom, tell us 
They all sat and listened. They don't say a word. And then they say, okay. And then they kind of start having a dialogue in front of you and not like, like the dialogues around Alexander in this um, hospital in Spain, the second one, were fights. It was like the ER doctor saying, I know what this baby needs and he needs this surgery. And the specialist who would come in and out, you know, I would overhear them on the phone kind of arguing about my baby, but have no, no ability to advocate for him. This one, it was just like, you know, your baby best mom, tell us, tell us. And then, so they would say, would this work for you? And so we were able to get him on, um, like just start turning him around like he breathing better getting uh all access to the stuff he needs like getting early intervention which i didn't that's a whole nother story right having no physical therapy occupational therapy special instructor i didn't even know that those were things that he could get um so yeah so i uh i it was it was it was really nice and so we did we stayed with them until uh finally, this is home, the Bay Area. And so finally, uh, we were able to just move home uh, like three months ago and find you. <laughs> wow. Yeah. What an accomplishment. Uh, he's a baby. He's an amazing, amazing he's baby. An, he's an amazing toddler now. He's a toddler. You're right. He's walking. <laughs> he's enjoying toys, video games. He knows how to scroll through your iPhone. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> and get what he wants. Yeah, yeah he does. He's amazing now. He's amazing. Yeah, he's so he's still so he's not quite walking, but he's standing up um and trying to walk on his own, but he's definitely crawling and he started that when he was um like 18 18 months old or so, so he's still developmentally behind. Um siblings for him have been everything like to have deprived him of his siblings for me was might have been the cruelest thing because this baby the second he was home and around his siblings you could see that the lights were going off right like there there's like oh my goodness these people are little and they love him I mean like my daughter changes his trach with me like we're all hands on deck when it comes to him he did a tumble today and we're all you know like the my son and her are just all over him um, but to have the siblings has yeah. been such a blessing because he's, he's immunocompromised. He's been hospitalized in New York. He was hospitalized probably five times in a year and a half. Um, he's been hospitalized here three times, uh, once already, but like we came to visit just for a month and he was hospitalized with something called RSV for two weeks. You know, I mean, so he's, he's got a lot where he can't, interact much with the outside world just because of his immune system but he's he's got a family and he's crawling and he's he's done so much yeah yeah and so the day that I met him what I observed you know his um aunt Juliet was holding him and he had a uh tremendous right head tilt mm -hmm. and um I think after I did some craniosacral and I adjusted his C1, I, you took him home and I think your husband noticed a big difference that day, but it was hard for you to see mm -hmm. a difference. Have you seen any difference in him since he's been coming kind of weekly now? Yeah, absolutely. And I have to say, so 
I just visited with the doctor. Um, let's see. So I was at your office on Monday. No. When was I? Yeah. I just, I just saw you this week. Yeah. And we did some work on um, his nerves. Yeah. And he has been like such a joy to be around. So he's had a hard time regulating his temperature or his um, emotions a bit. Um, he's like, oh, truthfully, the reasons why he would pass out was that he would get so angry and cry. He just stops breathing and passes out. <laughs> you know, that was like that we were having some issues with that. Um, these last two days, even my children were all like, oh my gosh, he, he's been, so, his temperament has been so sweet. I mean, really amazing. Like he's been, um, he gets mad, but he doesn't seem, he's been great. And then as far as his hypotonia and this head tilt, it's, it is, it's getting, it's getting there in the mornings when he's rested, he's really straight. Um, we switched recently from, um, I found out about craniosacral therapy because I'm on a bunch of Facebook groups for charge syndrome, for uh, feeding therapy and all this stuff. And so um, when the kids have the head tilt, somebody had mentioned that craniosacral therapy really helps. And so I think it's, I just see it getting stronger, like spending less time tilted over more time straight. And so I, I know we, it's a work in progress. Mm -hmm. um, but my husband, maybe it's because he's not around him like all, all the time immediately he was just like oh my gosh look at him and um i i noticed that when he's got no shirt on his back he has some scoliosis i think that he's getting stronger mm -hmm. and straighter good yeah and there's been since i've been here i've been doing a little bit of more functional nutrition with him just trying to um get some of the like toxins he's had so many antibiotics and stuff out um reset his gut because he's got a lot of I'm guessing it he just has probably so many bacterias um <laughs> that yeah. are good and good and bad right that just yeah. need to kind of recenter them and yeah. then and then you I mean I'm, I'm so grateful because you not only do you have a background like that's what's super important to me is that when I was trying to find somebody you have a background as a nurse and so a trach wouldn't necessarily throw you off or a feeding tube, like you know how to work around it. Like when yeah. a child has a feeding tube, I think that their stomach is probably misaligned no matter what, right? I, it seems to me like it must be because it's a plastic device kind of mm -hmm. that takes your center. It, yeah, it changes the position a little bit, it drags on it a little bit, but it's... I, I loved what you told me about the Mediterranean diet going into the G-tube. Yes. That was like amazing. <laughs> yeah. All pureed and he's getting this incredible nutrition that'll just rebuild him from the inside out. And by getting his nervous system cleared, you know, it's, it's rebuilding his brain. It's making new connections and new synapses. And mm -hmm. um, we did the retained neonatal reflex for the fear paralysis and for the morrow. And it sounded like it, it really did help him with his oversensitivity and his, um, he was having little tiny um, like temper tantrums. And it sounds mm -hmm. like it's been helping him. The it last has. Day. Yeah, it absolutely has. And yeah, and like, and going back and so I know I emailed you about his diet too, because, um, mm -hmm. so the, for all the bad things that happened about Spain, one great thing is that they, when he was old enough to be able to eat, they never recommended like a, a Nestle, uh, Pediasure, none of that. The doctor said, 
he's old enough to eat, put the Mediterranean diet in the blender and, and uh, start feeding him. You know, and so it was like olive oil with everything, equal parts, starch, protein. I mean, just food, just real food. And I went to go visit the nutritionist and I was spending a lot of time with them. And they were like, well, what are you, what are you feeding him? Okay, just look at your hand, you know, equal parts of all the stuff, olive oil, and, and give it to him. So when he turned a year old, he was unfortunately, he had already been spending time in the hospital uh, with RSV. And he turned a year and they said, oh, your baby's a year. We're going to try a different diet. And I said, oh, he's on the Mediterranean diet. Oh, well, you know, we can't calculate. We can't make sure he's getting the best diet for him. We have, it was basically Pediashore. We're going to give him Pediashore. And he vomited everywhere. And just, they tried every sort of diet that they could that was not real food. Yeah. it didn't work for him. And so, yeah, yeah, the Mediterranean or just real food. I mean, it's a lot of work to blend it, but I mean, the, he eats what we eat for the most part. He eats better actually. <laughs> it's, wow. That's so good. Yeah. Well, I want to thank you for everything that you've shared. Is there any advice you have for any parents out there or, um, if what how would you wrap this all up and oh yeah i mean i think that i think that what i can say that really helps is that just having support systems and so for me because i it's everything's new um i reached out to different facebook groups or i just joined anything that i thought might work Mm -hmm. and some of them like i'm on a uh, it's like an MTFHR, um, like, a, yeah. like group. Yeah. I mean, sometimes it's overwhelming. And sometimes you get like, uh, when you read something, you think it's there, it applies or not. But for me, more information was better than having nothing. And then um, when the time's right, I think it's, it is reaching out to, to people that I guess you could say practice a little bit more alternative medicine, because um, after we got him, what he needed from the doctors. There's only so much help and support, but they don't see him at home and they definitely don't see him on a weekly basis. But you now I've seen him more times than any doctor I can yeah. say, you know, yeah. and so, so you can sense it. And so to have a relationship like that, um, I think is important. And so, um, yeah, I think that it's, it's to reach out and get, if you suspect any, ugh, he, to me, his body's so it's fixable now. You know, it, I mean, it really is. Yeah, and we're gonna we're gonna send you to um, pediatric PT, and you know, it's only the the pediatric certified chiropractors that know how to do the retained neonatal reflex and to adjust the the neck so that the head tilt can be helped. Mm-hmm. And yeah, it's it's you need a team. You really do, and you mm-hmm. deserve that support mm-hmm. and you yeah. need to be adjusted and <laughs> given yeah. cranium sacral too because <laughs> yeah. you've been through a lot mm-hmm. you need yeah that healing. you need the healing time for you yeah i so feel I like want... that's in the future <laughs> yes well and could start now <laughs> okay so but i mean i really want to salute you and what you've done and what you've been through and it's been a you guys have survived soul wants to survive and your son 
as soul um, is a strong being and mm -hmm. you've really helped nurture and give life to this boy and he's given so much to you and it's just a beautiful relationship it's a beautiful life together Thank you. I, I just can't salute you enough and your sister Juliet and Tom and thank God for the US healthcare system even though it's extremely expensive um, and it has a lot of problems but it is so much better than some other countries mm -hmm. as we've heard today and um, yeah, thank you so yep. much, Nicole, for sharing such deep pain and suffering and yet such joy too. Oh, thank you. I really, I mean, it's like I said, it's, that's in the past now. And so, yeah, I think that we've been able to, um, we're super optimistic about, and he's like, a, he's, I don't know what we would do without him. He's amazing. So <laughs> the joy of your yeah. children is just amazing. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So thank you. And thanks so much. And, and my family too, like I said, you know, Juliet, you've met her and she's been at almost she's every appointment she can. Um, she's and so then, wonderful. Oh. Yeah. And if it's not her, it's Tommy. So yes. Yeah, so and thank you for acknowledging us. Oh God, I'm, I'm just amazed what you have done and what you continue to do. And I'm so honored to be a part of your family and, a, you know, work team, actually yep. part of the team to help this guy get the most potential for his life. So thank you. Thank, thank you. you for helping all our listeners understand and listeners. Thank you for being here and hope you had enough Kleenexes by because I ran out with four. <laughs> I didn't mean to make anybody cry. I kind of thought it was going to be, it's hard because once you, once you start going, it just, you know, it doesn't you come have out. To, it comes cathartic. out. Yeah. It's yeah. Cause it, it was painful. Right. Yes. And so it's, um, yeah. And I don't mean to make anybody cry. No. And that wasn't your intention, but <laughs> anybody with a soft heart would cry. Okay. <laughs> well, thank but, you. Thank you, Nicole. And thank you, listeners. And we'll, we'll see you next week. Thanks.